during the uh, late 1960s, what was to become a very famous movie came out called Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? I suspect there's a few people here who've seen it. Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? The movie revolved around a story of a white, upper-class American couple who are very excited about their only daughter who is travelling home for a visit. What's really exciting for them is that she is bringing home her new fiancé for the very first time. They are excited because even though they haven't met him before, they are the, everything they've heard about him sounds great. The bloke's got a good education, great job. He's a doctor. He's even done some quite famous research in medical science and so he is everything they have ever wanted for their daughter. He's wealthy, he's successful, he's gifted, he's highly expect, respected around the world. But of course, if you've seen the movie, you will know that the whole story turns on the fact that when they finally meet him, their daughter's fiancé turns out to be a black American in the 1960s in America. Now that was a very provocative thing to be happening. And so you see, at the time, for these parents, all their built-up excitement, all their joy about meeting their future son-in-law, all their anticipation when they actually open the door and look at him, it evaporates into surprise and confusion and shock because he's so different to what they're expecting, what they're even wanting. Guess who's coming to dinner? Now, friends, I say all that because I'm thinking that a good subtitle for Mark's gospel would be Guess Who's Coming to Galilee? Because what happened in that movie, that's pretty much what happens in Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel is all about the arrival of someone who is very eagerly awaited for. It's about the arrival of someone that, that Israel have been looking forward to for so long and their expectations are sky high. And yet when they finally open the door and meet him, he turns out to be completely different to what they were expecting, to what they were even wanting. Now over the next few weeks we're going to be uh, looking at Mark's Gospel in a whirlwind tour that will take us through the whole Gospel in just five talks. Uh, pity about you if you get the Bible reading next week. We're going to be doing that so as to help us appreciate the big picture you see of Mark's Gospel. Because isn't it true that we all know bits and pieces about the Gospels? You know, so, for example, we might know that Jesus fed 5,000 people somewhere in the Gospel or that he rode a donkey into Jerusalem somewhere in the Gospel or that he healed a blind man somewhere in the Gospel. But often we don't see the full importance of those events because we don't appreciate the bigger story that is happening around them. Well, it's that big picture, that big story in Mark that we're going to be investigating throughout this series as we think about how Mark is put together. And as I've already mentioned, the way it's put together is that it's built around this really big build-up of expectation and excitement followed by a really big surprise, uh, a surprise which Israel are certainly not expecting, but a surprise which, as it turns out, spells good news for you and I. Let me show you what I mean by looking at just the first dozen verses of chapter 1 this morning. Because what you find, the way Mark structures itself is that the opening few verses, this introduction that we're looking at this morning, it's sort of a mini version of what's going to happen in the entire book. That just as the whole book of Mark has this big build-up followed by a big surprise, 
That is what you also get in these opening introductory verses. Let's see how it works. Firstly, the big build-up of this introduction, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now friends, even from that very first sentence, Mark is building into the text a feeling of anticipation about this person, Jesus. See, the word gospel that's used there, that's not a particularly religious word. It's a word which simply means important news, monumental news, urgent news. When the television says we interrupt this program to bring in an important news flash, that's a gospel. And what Mark is saying here in his opening sentences, hey everyone, I want to interrupt your life to bring you an important news flash. Forget what you're doing, put the paper down, stop daydreaming, turn off the DVD player. This is big news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Son of God. Now those words can roll off our lips a little bit too casually, I think, as Christians. But think, physically look down at those words on the page. The Son of God. In other words, Mark is going to go on and tell us about how God has stepped foot on this earth in the form of his Son. Friends, that is a remarkable thought. God has been here. God has been here. God has been walking around. God has been going up to people and saying, Hi, pleased to meet you. Let me introduce myself. God has been going to dinner parties. God has been smiling and laughing with people. God has been here telling us about life. God has been getting sweaty and tired. God has been going out fishing. God has been here. Now, friends, the implications of that are enormous. Because all of a sudden, we don't have to take guesses about what God's like anymore. You know, is, is there a God? Isn't there a God? If there is a God, what's he like? Is there a heaven? Is there... You don't have to guess about that anymore. Because if you'd have been alive at the right period of history, you could have physically met God. You could have physically seen God. You could have given God a hug. And as it is we can read the first-hand accounts of people who did get to meet him, who did see him, who did give him a hug. God's been here. It sounds crazy, I know, but Mark is saying, look, stop what you're doing, put the magazine down, lift your thoughts out of your small little world and listen into this. God has been here. So important is this, that the Old Testament has actually been running advertisements for it for thousands of years. Verse 2, it's written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Now in those verses, Mark now quotes some slabs out of the Old Testament for us so as to add weight to this idea of the important news about Jesus, the Son of God, arriving. Now, the quotes come from a mixture of books. They come from Malachi and Isaiah. And they're quotes which, back when they were first said, uh, they were quotes which predicted a day. They predicted the day when God himself would arrive. And they said that this was the day when God was going to arrive and judge Israel. He would set up an eternal kingdom and he would judge sin. And in preparation of that day when God would come, it was going to be so important that he would send a messenger ahead of time to get Israel ready for it. 
Now, friends, at this point, we could say a lot about uh, those verses. They're particularly important. But in one sense, we've already been there in our previous series. Remember when we finished off Malachi? We looked at one of these quotes and the whole idea that God was going to come to visit Israel in justice and in righteousness and that Malachi was saying, oh, get ready for that day. God's going to send a message ahead of you. So if you want to have some more thinking about those particular verses, go back and have a look at the, the, at the tape library about how we finished off Malachi. Sufficient to just say here for the sake of time, Mark's saying the day that the Old Testament was looking for, it's here. Hey, God's arrived in his own son. The event that the Old Testament had been running advertisements for thousands of years ago for, it's here. God's come to fix the world up. God's come to bring justice. And therefore, as we might expect, the messenger that the Old Testament said would come ahead of time to get Israel ready, he's here too, in the form of John the Baptist. Verse 4. And so John came, baptising in the desert region and, baptizing a bap- sorry, and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 7. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I will not be worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptise you with water. He'll baptise you with the Holy Spirit. You know how that experience when you've been driving along the road and you pass a car or you see a car coming towards you uh, with flashing lights and a big sign on top of it saying, beware, wide load following. Now, you know when that happens, you automatically look past that car to see what's coming behind it, don't you? The car with the lights and the sign, that's got a really important function, but it's not actually the most important thing. It's what's coming behind it, isn't it? That is John the Baptist. John the Baptist is running ahead with flashing lights and a sign saying, look behind me, look behind me, check out who's coming. Someone really important is on his way. And who is that person? Well, God himself leaves absolutely no doubt. For as Jesus of Nazareth comes to John the Baptist to be baptised, God himself breaks through and speaks. Verse 11. A voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now, friends, I just want to linger on that one verse for a moment because it is huge. If you were reading that and you knew your Old Testament, if you were reading this for the first time, this is the sort of verse that the hairs on the back of your head would start to stand up. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. That statement is a combination of two Old Testament verses. One of them comes from Psalm 2. The other one comes from Isaiah 42. Now, Psalm 2 is a passage all about the Messiah, the great king of David, uh, who was going to come and rescue God's people. The Messiah, the Christ, was a mighty king that the Old Testament predicted, a powerful figure that the Old Testament predicted would come and smash the enemies of God like, like pieces of pottery. That's the Messiah. Psalm, uh, Isaiah 42, on the other hand, is a passage about the suffering servant, He is a much softer, mysterious figure. He also was predicted as coming in the Old Testament, but he was coming to remove the sins of God's people. He was coming to die so as to help reconcile God's people to God. 
by suffering on their behalf. Isaiah 42, Psalm 2, the suffering servant, the Messiah. They are two of the really big names of the Old Testament. And here in verse 11, in a stroke of absolute genius, God says they are actually one and the same person. Now the Jews had always thought that they might be two different people. So different are they in their descriptions. So different are the things that they were coming to do. But now God breaks in and announces that the suffering servant is the Messiah. The king of God's people is also the one who is going to die to remove the sins of God's people. And for the person who is sort of familiar with their Old Testament, it's about now that their head would be spinning and they'd be going a little bit faint because this is mind-boggling. We are seeing that virtually everything that God has been planning and saying in the Old Testament, everything that he's been working to in the Old Testament, every person God seems to have been saying is on their way, they're all here in the one person. God coming in judgment to Israel. God's king coming to rule. God's servant coming to suffer. They're actually all the one person. And it's the bloke standing in front of John the Baptist. It's a staggering moment in human history. During the week I read an article which listed the top ten most powerful people in the world. Not surprisingly, George W. Bush headed the list. And the reasons were pretty obvious. Now, President Bush is the leader of the most technologically powerful economy in history. He is the supreme commander of the greatest military arsenal in the history of the world. And so when the US talks, the world listens. It is responsible for 40% of the world's military spending. Not only that, but as previous weeks have all shown us, when the American economy shapes, shakes, we feel it. Even mortgage holders in Dubbo feel it. And yet Mark's gospel is telling us that for all the power at George Bush's disposal, Jesus has more in his little finger. For he is God himself, the Son of God. And he is coming to bring in justice and to right the wrongs of the world, just like the Old Testament had been predicting. And he is God's appointed king, come to rule God's people and to crush the enemies of God, just as the Old Testament predicted. And he is God's appointed saviour who has come to suffer and to remove the sin of God's people, just like the Old Testament predicted. And they are all one and the same person. It's Jesus of Nazareth. Now that's a pretty big build-up. I've been to conferences and I've heard keynote speakers introduce and you know when a keynote speaker gets up, someone gets up and they say all the things that they've done. I have not heard a build-up that has anything uh, patch on what Mark has been saying about Jesus of Nazareth here, which is what makes the thing that follows such a surprise. Verse 12. At once, the Spirit sent him out into the desert and he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. Friends, you've got to appreciate that Jesus has just walked onto centre stage of history and it's as if he just walks straight off the stage. 
It's as if he walks up to the microphone and just keeps walking past it. Here is the Messiah. Here is the one the Jews have been waiting for for so long. They, they want him to come and overthrow the Roman Empire. They want him to come and establish Israel as the rulers of the world. Here's the one that the Old Testament has been hanging out for. Here is, God, here is the one that God himself has been blowing trumpets over and no sooner is it that he arrives than he disappears again into the desert for over a month. What is going on there? This is, this is not expected. It's like being a 1960s upper-class American parent opening the door to discover that your daughter is engaged to a black man. This isn't what I had planned. This isn't what was in my dreams. This, what's going on here? Well, what's going on, of course, is that God in his goodness and genius is doing something far beyond what Israel were expecting. For you see, Israel are expecting, they're wanting someone to get them out of trouble with the Roman Empire. They're wanting someone, they're expecting someone who's going to turn Israel into a world power and flood them with wealth and prestige. God has other plans. Because according to God's plans, Jesus hasn't come to take on the Roman Empire. He's actually come to take on someone far more important than that. He's come to take on the forces of evil. He's come to take on Satan himself. And so to our eyes, disappearing for a month in the desert, being tempted by Satan, that can seem a bit off, uh, a little bit strange, but from God's point of view, that is exactly what needs to happen. For you see, God, he looks into our lives and he sees that for all the intents and purposes that we looked at as if we've got things in control, God looks into our lives and he sees that you and me and our friends... We are living under the influence of evil forces. And therefore, we don't need a better education system. We, we don't necessarily need full employment. What we need is not to be entertained or have self-esteem courses or lots of money. Those things might have their place, but what we need most is to be saved from the forces of evil. And so God sent his son to confront Satan and to rescue people from him, which is what Jesus starts to do in the desert and he's going to finish doing it at the cross. And so this big build-up and then this big surprise, it's actually all leading us to a very big lesson. It is the lesson that from God's perspective, Jesus comes not to meet our needs uh, that we think of. He comes as ultimate answer to what we really need, deliverance from evil. Because you pick up any paper and you can read about it. This world is a mess. There is justice, injustice everywhere. Violence is rampant. Selfishness is all around us. Selfishness, heck, is inside us. And even in the closest-knit family, are there not times when we are at each other? And there is tension and there is anger and there is misunderstanding. And it's been like it ever since the Garden of Eden because we're living under the influence of evil. We are willingly believing Satan's lies that God can't be trusted and that we know better than him. And Mark wants to tell us the gospel that the Son of God has come to confront him on that and to break the hold that Satan has on us. Which makes it the most important event to ever happen in world history. 
And in that sense, I'm thinking that this is a passage, this is a great passage for just giving us a reality check and helping us to realign our lives and get things into perspective. Mal Baggett often tells me that uh, he finds church time as a really helpful time for checking his bearings in life, is I think the way he says it. Uh, it's because he used to be in the Navy and you see, you know how a boat gets pushed off course over time? The winds and the currents uh, can just knock it off course and so every now and then the captain needs to just check his bearings and make sure they're still on course. Well, well, that's us. Now, life comes at it from all these other angles. There's bills to be paid, there's, there's th- obligations to do, there's, there's work to go to and so easily we can get, just get pushed off course by just the pressures of life. This is a good passage to help us stay on course because it's a passage that, that, that opens with a blaze of statements about Jesus from Mark himself to the Old Testament, to John the Baptist, to God himself and they are all screaming out to us that the news of Jesus is no small thing. Jesus is at the centre of God's plans and God's purposes. And by implication, he ought to be at the centre of ours as well. I read this the other day. It's called, Isn't It Curious? I wonder if you can relate to it. Isn't it curious how a $10 note can seem so much money when you're giving it to a gospel ministry, but it seems so little money when it comes to buying fast food? Isn't it curious how a couple of hours spent at church can seem so long to us but how fast the time goes when you're watching a movie. Isn't it curious how we get so excited when a football game goes into extra time, but we complain when a sermon is a bit longer than usual? Isn't it curious how hard it is to read a chapter in the Bible, but how easy it is to read a 100-page novel? Isn't it curious how we, can poss- that how we can't possibly fit a prayer meeting into our schedule, but we can schedule other things at a moment's notice? Friends, a passage like this gives us a really helpful reality check. It helps us to know what matters matter. It helps us to see again that the news of Jesus and things to do with him are no small thing. Friends, being a follower of Jesus is no small thing. We are following the most important person in the world. We're involved in spreading a gospel that can transform this world. I'll pray. Father God, thank you for prompting us again from your word, helping us to see the true greatness of Jesus Christ. Father, we want to ask forgiveness for the, for the way in which we let our lives get so crowded out by often good and worthwhile things that they push off centre stage the most important thing, the gospel of your precious son. Father, thank you that Jesus came. Thank you that he came to do battle with the forces of evil and to rescue us from their hold on us. And Father, we pray that because of that, you would help us to put Jesus at centre stage of our life so that in our thoughts and our plans and our desires that he would be number one, that we would see this life from your perspective, that we would live to honour you 
by, live to, by living to honour Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.